to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I just got back from the United Kingdom, had a wonderful time in merry old England, didn't rain too much, and I attended uh, Breaking Convention, the fourth international conference on psychedelic consciousness, which was uh, quite a blast. Uh, I've been to Breaking Convention before, and it has a wonderful mix of, uh, of everybody's there, the, the, the shamans, the mystics, the weirdos, the DJs, the neuroscientists, the legal scholars, the historians, the anthropologists, uh, the poets. And it was a, a, a wonderful mix of ideas. And uh, over the next couple of months, you'll probably be hearing from a number of people who I saw give talks there uh, that blew my mind. Um, but uh, today, we're, I'm still mopping up from psychedelic science a couple of months ago here in, uh, in the Bay Area. And uh, one of the people that I've been wanting to bring on the show that we have today is uh, Tessin Nurani, who gave one of the most uh, provocative talks I saw at psychedelic science. Because one of the interesting things that's happening right now in psychedelics is the sort of uh, as the research is going forward and more and more neuroscientists and uh, psychologists and uh, clinical researchers are starting to, or not even starting to, are diving full, fully into the question of how these substances can serve us today, how we can reframe the stories uh, about what they do, what they are. Um, a lot of other folks are coming along the line to study what's happening, uh, not just uh, historians and uh, critical outsiders like myself, but also anthropologists, philosophers, um, uh, educators. Uh, lots of different angles are now being uh, sort of brought into uh, the psychedelic kaleidoscope, and uh, Tassin represented a very interesting uh, and to my mind, quite stimulating approach. Uh, he's a, a he's a research scientist at NYU currently. He works in the uh, what is known as STS in the Academy Science Technology Studies, which is uh, one of the more interesting uh, disciplinary currents at the moment, at least in my opinion. So he brings some uh, anthropological, philosophical, theoretical questions to bear on uh, the issues raised by science, technology, medicine, uh, and mental health. Uh, he wrote his dissertation on Spinoza and mental health, which is already sounds pretty interesting to me. And he was also working as a postdoc at Johns Hopkins uh, during some of their psilocybin studies and so was able to uh, check out uh, what they were doing as, as well. So uh, for an interesting perspective on uh, psychedelic science, I welcome uh, Tassin Narani to the show. Tassin, thanks for uh, talking with us on Expanding Mind. Hi, Eric. It's a pleasure. Uh, I hope you can hear me okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it sounds great. You know, listen, I, I mean, I want to talk about uh, the, the, the issues you raised in your, your uh, presentation at Psychedelic Science. Um, but I, I'm kind of interested in your background, too. I mean, it, 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 you have a uh, your, your um, sort of CV seems at once to be a kind of scientist, research scientist CV, and at the same time, you're clearly asking a lot of anthropological, philosophical, theoretical questions. So I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about how you've been both a a acting sort of within 
uh, signs and particularly mental health issues in a, in a practical, pragmatic way, but also clearly asking some uh, deep questions that, that folks who are, uh, you know, working on the day-to-day -day don't always get to. So I, I'd love to hear a little background of how your studies brought you to some of the issues you talk about uh, in terms of psychedelic research today. Sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, I, I, I guess it started off um, in mental health. Uh, I, uh, I did a PhD in sociology, specifically socio-legal studies, which I think in the U.S. is off, more often known as law and society. And that was looking at uh, self-help and peer support groups in mental health. And in particular, um, one network that I focused on in my PhD was the Hearing Voices Network, where people uh, all hear voices or have similarly unusual um, perceptions and uh, and sensations. And um, and they get together in groups um, and they talk about it and they share um, strategies for coping and for transforming their experiences by like directly engaging with them. So there's a kind of experimental focus to it where people will share and then go away and and engage with their voices and then come back and, and, and talk about what happened and slowly build a kind of deeper experiential knowledge base out of that. So it's a kind of fascinating um, area within mental health that kind of sometimes pitched as anti-psychiatry, sometimes as critical psychiatry or post-psychiatry, that the relationship with kind of orthodox psychiatry is, um, is in flux um, itself. And then after I did that, I, uh, I moved to the U.S. and kind of more or less fell into um, working with uh, Roland Griffith's lab in, uh, at, at Hopkins. I was on a uh, drug-dependence epidemiology training program, a postdoc, for two years, a two-year position after my Ph.D. Um, but uh, I ended up hearing while I was doing that postdoc, which is an epidemiology, so kind of statistics around drug use and drug dependence, I heard about this psychedelic psychopharmacology that was going on sort of around the corner in the School of Medicine, which seemed much more interesting to me. So I kind of jumped ship and um, met up with them and ended up offering them my skills and doing qualita some qualitative research on Matt Johnson's um, smoking cessation pilot study. So I could offer my qualitative research skills, um, which, which they were interested in. And at the same time, I was kind of fascinated in that as a different site within which you have the, 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 the production here of these quite extreme experiences that are in some ways similar, although in lots of ways different from the experiences within the Hearing Voices Network that I'd looked at. Um, so that's how I kind of ended up doing that postdoc. After that, I moved to New York for a couple of years and uh, taught, uh, as you said, in the STS program at NYU, um, including a course on um, psychedelics, which is, I think, the first course that's been taught there um, from a more kind of critical theory humanities perspective in, in decades, maybe, uh, which is cool. And then just recently, I've actually moved back to the UK. Um, so my partner got a job here. So that's kind of, it's been a bit of a strange trajectory through lots of different disciplines and, and, and across the Atlantic one, but that's where I'm at. Uh, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the Hearing Voices movement, just because it's such a fascinating thing. I mean, if I re recall correctly, it really began 
like in the UK, if I remember correctly, that that folks were 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 starting to go, hey, there's a different way of dealing with this issue. And you know, to talk about a 180 degree turn, I mean, it's not unlike the turn that's happening currently with psychedelics in in terms of orthodox research, where you know, 20, 30 years ago, you know, the idea of hearing voices was just like instant pathology. I mean, if you had, you know, if you had the experience, you thought, oh my God, I'm going crazy. If you heard that somebody else had it, you would assume that they were nuts. And this is not just, you know, uh, orthodox straight-laced people. I think it was just widely held that if there was, you know, one single obvious sign of you're going bonkers, it was hearing voices. But of course, now it's all transformed, not just because of the hearing voices movement where people are saying, look, I hear voices. Let's see if we can live with them. Let's see if we can learn from them. Let's see if we can, you know, figure out ways to not have the more deleterious aspects of it take over our lives. But not even just that. More and more studies are showing that we all kind of hear voices. And in fact, hearing voices is partly a way of just interpreting the voice, the the sort of speech acts that are always going on in our heads. So it's really been an extraordinary change. But it was driven partly by some, what do you, we don't even want to call them sufferers, people who have experiencers is a better term. Mm. And I, I get the sense that that was part of what you were looking at is how people who are suffering these symptoms or experiencing these symptoms themselves can take agency over what's happening to them in a different way than the psychiatric apparatus is offering to them. Yeah, that's right. Um, broadly, yeah, the, the, the Hearing Voices Network, I think it, so it started in the Netherlands, but um, okay. it really took a kind of strong, uh, develop, developed um, a very established network of groups in the UK, yeah, um, especially, I think, sort of in the 90s. Um, and, and now I heard recently that there are 50 groups, for example, in London alone, uh, including a group in every prison, um, so, uh, yeah, the Hearing Voices Network is definitely quite established here. It's interesting to, to think about its history. I mean, uh, it sort of originated with a psychiatrist, actually, Marius Rom, who in the Netherlands was challenged by one of the people who came to him, one of one, a voice hearer named Patsy Haig. And she challenged him um, when... Uh, uh, she, she, she challenged him with the proposition that her voices were sort of very much real. And uh, she uh, and they ended up going on a radio show together uh, where they talked about her experiences and um, put out a call for anyone listening who hears voices um, to uh, to get in touch. And lots of people got in touch. And that was kind of the beginning of this um, pheno- of a kind of curiosity about this phenomenon for them but so it's kind of interesting that a psychiatrist was there at its at its beginnings and there have been some kind of parts of psychiatry that have been less um but they've been less emerging well i think they haven't been emerging at all from within kind of biochemical psychiatry but they have been from the more phenomenological um branches of psychiatry that still kind of exist that might be less kind of mainstream in lots of ways um, that have been looking at, as you say, like hearing voices as kind of forms of inner speech and so on. Um, I would recommend for anyone who's interested, uh, the Hearing Voices Network, especially the UK one, I think has a, has a great website. Yeah, but there's an international voice hearing association website called Intervoice, 
as well. And 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 finally, what one group that's doing really kind of interesting work on this is out of Durham University in the UK. They've had a long and uh, I think maybe five year and interdisciplinary research program into hearing voices, and that's called Hearing the Voice. So that's great. Um, so I would check out any of that stuff. But um, at the same time, yeah, you've had the emergence of uh, Mad Pride, uh, a Mad Pride movement. Um, so the kind of politics of um, mental health and, and hearing voices is kind of, it's pretty complicated. There are lots of different kind of currents. But as you say, I think, I think there's, a, there's more scope for the expression of a plurality of voices today than there would have been like 20 years ago or something. Yeah, and, that's, and as you mentioned, that seems not, not unrelated to some of the changes that are happening with psychedelics in terms of reframing experiences that uh, look sound pathological on, on, the, on the page, at least from a, a tr more traditional point of view, uh, as being sources of meaning or, or, or you know, potentially uh, sources of understanding the world. What, what, are there other kind of connections between those things that you, that you see or that was that helped you get into the, the issues raised by psychedelic therapy maybe more intensely because you had already been thinking about some similar things with uh, hearing voices? Yeah, that's a nice question. Well, because because in some sense, as, as I said, I kind of fell into the psychedelic stuff. So there wasn't, for me, it wasn't like a kind of intentional seeking out of it as, as a logical next site. So I have had, I have done this kind of retrospective stitching together and thinking through my prior lens um, when thinking about the psychedelic issues. Um, I suppose broadly speaking, um, I'm always really interested in uh, the phenomenologies of psychedelic experiences themselves. And also the kind of um, the, the quite technical ways in which people uh, in which these experiences are engaged with. So that's to say how people kind of go into psychedelic experiences, of course, like stuff around set and setting and so on. But also um, how the how the experiences are shaped by institutional protocols with the overground research um, ways of needing to um to, to, to take to, to to produce these experiences um, that don't get people into trouble with the law um, stuff like that so um, and, and some of that stuff I mean these are they're both you could say broadly stigmatized um, sets of experiences there's sort of taboos involved in both so for someone like me with more of a sociological training there's quite a rich set of different um, factors that you could sort of try applying to in both cases there's also um as as i'm sure you many of your listeners will know this this the model psychosis theory or this notion of psychedelics as psychotomimetic is perhaps the oldest name for the substances and one that has certainly fallen out of favor in the mainstream certainly in the medicalizing kind of push within the psychedelics movement but that theory goes back quite far and um I mean, to, to the 1800s. And, uh, and that's kind of a rationale for putting these things side by side. Although, if you follow that line forwards, the kind of notion of the model psychosis theory, you, you would tend to end up in quite a biomedical way of thinking now. Um, and, and there are people who are, who, are, who are kind of utilizing that theory to kind of experiment still with psychedelics, like Mark Geyer on the West Coast, um, 
but it's in terms of in terms of the overall experience it's not considered um a very um valuable theory today but it's one that i'm interested in uh because it almost provides a bridge between the scientific research that can then allow a kind of um a way into thinking about the more underground experimentation with psychedelics and and and, and psychos sort of quote unquote psychotic experiences well, since you're, uh, you, ha you have the sociological background, and, and one of the things that STS does, of course, is to, look, is to study science the way an anthropologist would study, you know, uh, an indigenous tribe or some other, uh, other organization. And it's one of the wonderful things about the discipline is that, that I think it's particularly important these days, given that, you know, science is, this still has this hold on uh, capital T truth, although it's uh, dissolving, unfortunately, <laughs> before our very eyes. Uh, nonetheless, it's really, really important for us to understand how science works sociologically. And this is particularly evident now with psychedelic research, with the, with the so-called renaissance, because we can kind of see a new story being constructed before our very eyes, how these in new institutional players you know, new forms of language and and uh, agency are built around these experiences that had been so uh, largely underground for so long. So, bringing the, those that those lenses to Hopkins, what would you say? What were you interested in? What what in terms of the way in which they are developing? A new story, or a new set of stories, or frameworks around psychedelics. How can you reflect? How, how do you reflect on that uh, critically, as well as constructively, in terms of um, having a, a you know a, an intimate you know a, a, a rings ringside seat, so to say, uh, on uh, one of the most important areas for psychedelic research. Hmm. Um, well, I'm still trying to do it. <laughs> Still trying to untangle some of this stuff, but um, some sort of preliminary thoughts. Um, yeah, uh, there's a, uh, uh, I don't know what discipline he's in, actually. Um, uh, Richard de Grandpre, he, he coined this term pharmacologicalism. And I think that's quite a useful term. Pharmacologicalism is kind of the idea or, um, yeah, the, the idea that, uh, the effects of a drug are kind of contained within the drug itself, within the kind of pill itself, if you like. Um, and so, so, so there have been like long-standing critiques within anthropology and STS of pharmacologicalism, and then that shouldn't be uh, that shouldn't be unfamiliar to anyone who sort of knows the psychedelic scene because of this notion that's sort of quite a pat mantra almost of drug set setting. Um, like the, the the psychedelic experiences are constituted through all three, and perhaps you know you could add more things to that. Um, so, so that's 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 been quite useful for me in going in is to kind of try and understand the ways in which ultimately a lot of these trials are set up, and they're kind of in ways that are sort of necessarily enforced by the agencies that allow these trials to take place. They're set up in ways that uh, essentially are testing the drugs, t testing the psychedelics themselves to, to look for kind of efficacy and safety and so forth. Um, and yet that's in sort of tension with the fact that we know 
that um, in particular with psychedelics, which are these kind of class of drugs that are so sensitive to initial conditions, the set and setting and the other contextual factors which we might want to emphasize as a result of this kind of critique of pharmacologicalism um, play a huge role. So that for me was interesting, the way in which despite a real attention to drug set and setting, to making people really comfortable. And, and, and just as a sort of an aside, uh, these, these, I mean, Hopkins, but I, and I know a little bit about the situation at NYU, having been there for a bit, um, they're amazing spaces. They're, they're exceptional spaces. I, I'm not someone who studies um, psychopharmacology, so um, maybe I'm out of place in saying that. But so f for me, and just having been in these in this one sort of site of psychedelic psychopharmacology, there's such wonderful, welcoming spaces. They seem so far from the kind of sterile, white-walled uh, imaginary of where someone might be tested with a, with, with, with a drug um, so as to minimize any other interrupting factors or something. This is really kind of almost first and foremost about trust and uh, developing, uh, making sure that the experiences are had as safely as possible before even then attending to questions of whether they're actually got therapeutic efficacy. So that's a sort of a, a sort of a bit of an aside, but but for me still, it's interesting to trace. It's really interesting to trace these kind of questions around how is it that the drug is made the centre of the kind of attention within the construction of the knowledge in these labs and all the way through to kind of the, um, the publication of papers that are written in certain kinds of ways that really bring out sort of the effect of the drug versus a placebo or, you know, a different dose, different doses or whatever, um, versus thinking about, well, how much of a role are these guides playing who, um, some of the participants might say that they came to know and trust just as well, if not better, than their spouses? Or what role is it playing that people are coming to these university hospitals that are um, such, um, pa pa such exceptional zo zo um, sort of spaces for the use of substances that would be illegal anywhere else? So they're coming to a university with an and they make with a huge team, or you know, a team of people who are very attentive to them, um, where they can, it's a kind of once in a lifetime opportunity where they can use a certain substance. So all of that is obviously going to play quite a big role too. And so passing out these diff the, these kind of things is, um, is a challenge in, in the construction of the science. So I guess, so that's sort of some of the stuff that I found very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, I mean, it's a wonderful uh, situation because, as you say, like uh, cr critical questions, more anthropological or sociological I issues that are, that can be brought up with all sorts of science, are much more obvious here. You you can see these the way in which these cultural conditions are actually shaping the experience in question in a way that that eludes the way that science is normally used to dealing at least with uh, psychoactive mm. uh, medicines. And one of the ways that, that I've you know thought about it when I'm looking at you know at Hopkins like what can we really say? What have we really learned from from some of these studies is that again like you like you point out, if you have a 
a really wonderful zone with really caring people and it's a very special environment and people are very you know have a lot of expectation and intensity and then you introduce these drugs in these environments under these conditions really amazing things can happen but from my perspective it, it looks much more like a construction or a mm. theater than it looks like a scientific study you know that molecule a produces effects b and c and so while i'm happy that this is happening i think it looks very different to my eyes than than a lot of people who sort of want it to be science just enough so that they can get the regulatory processes underway, so that they can get the therapeutic mm -hmm. protocols done, they can get the licensing done, all of that sort of real-world stuff, that's great. But at the same time, they realize that they can't just hand over a pill, that they need this whole set-and-setting mm -hmm. apparatus, you need the musical playlist, you need the, the mm -hmm. rose and the, and the thing, you know, mm -hmm. you need yeah. all this extra stuff, which is not science as normal. So it's it's mm -hmm. kind of funny because it's almost like the psychedelics have slipped in the fact that science isn't quite what it looks like, at least a lot of the time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and now we're sort of wrestling over how to how to keep this thing moving. Uh, and, and it's a, it's a strange situation because it's like you want to support the science, and at the same time, it, it also reflects the way in which psychedelics don't lead to science as nor as, as in, a, in a typical sense. They they undermine mm. that that kind of structure. So it's a it's mm. a really 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 fascinating zone, and it's not always clear to me. You know, I mean, I've had my conversations with with Roland Griffiths and Bill Richards and and those folks. It's not always clear to me how. I would say aware they are that the degree of construction that they're involved in, uh, that mm -hmm. they there's often a sort of sense that like, no, no, a mystical experience has these five factors. And therefore, if we can produce them, it shows that this, this, this mm -hmm. leads to actual, you know, mystical experiences. And I'm like, wow, man, you guys are like, or you guys just have a really good trip going. It's like, you can go out to Burning Man or you can go into a lab with Hawkins, Hawkins and, you know, you're creating environments where things happen. So it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a kind of fascinating uh, zone. Did you feel, were you, did you feel at once like you were kind of inside and outside because you have this anthropological lens? Did you feel that you were part of the kind of healing matrix there as well? Or were you more of a, a, an observer? Oh, uh, I mean, more of an observer. I, I was I was doing retrospective um, interviews, so people were kind of coming in again, sometimes after several years, and uh, we were having like in-depth interview. I was conducting in-depth interviews with them about how they perceived mechanisms of change, um, if any, to have kind of taken place in relation to their smoking or anything else. So that was yeah that was definitely as a kind of outsider. Although it was there was something really powerful. I mean in every interview that made it clear that there was something kind of, I don't know if therapeutic is the right word, but um, something really special in kind of going through it again. And in some senses, there was a bit of sense making that was, I think, fresh, which I think is, 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 has, um, has, has produced my interest in how, these, how, how the sense making of these experiences continues well after the fact. And that needs to be recognized and sort of celebrated rather than assimilating what's happening here more to this idea of a kind of the automaticity of you take a pill, things change. So but, but in terms of what you're saying about 
Yeah, in, ter in terms of what you're saying about the special construction of the site, that's, there's this other notion of ecological validity that's pretty helpful there, this idea of um, to what extent do the results within a particular setting, like a laboratory setting, extend kind of more broadly. And if someone's been given pure psilocybin in this kind of setting, exactly, you know, as you say, how, to what extent does that transfer to someone taking mushrooms or, or anything else in a completely different context? Um, and that, interestingly, is I don't think it's a problem, really, for the researchers who are really essentially trying to export a model. They're trying to export a whole kind of therapeutic intervention and the utopia in the kind of research in in these researchers' eyes, these you know, for, for those of them that that think this way, is um, this idea of you know you check yourself in on a Friday and you have a smoking addiction and you check yourself out on a Sunday night and you don't um, and you've gone to some kind of psychedelic spa or this kind of thing. I mean, they're not. I think in all the negotiations with the FDA and their equivalents in Europe and that. There's never any ambiguity about the fact that this is more than just a drug intervention, and yet it, uh, the institutions that they're dealing with are used to dealing with drugs. So there's, there's all kinds of uh, interesting kind of complexities that get thrown up. Well, one of the things you, you mentioned there that, that I think is, is particularly true is, is that how important it is to recognize that the meaning of these experiences, to the extent that they have meaning, is in, in large part do, uh, you know, dependent on how they are thought about, reframed, reworked, integrated, questioned uh, after the fact. Uh, and that mm. just as our expectations and set and setting help shape the experience itself, that the residue of the experience in our memory is, is, is an open field that, that can continue to be worked question played with uh, and, and refrained. I think that whole side of it, uh, what, what a lot of people talk about is integration is really important, both in the in terms of the underground and in terms of uh, making sure that the uh, uh, above board psychedelic therapy is effective. But what I really liked about your talk at Psychedelic Science is that you kind of went into some of the implications of this sort of ongoing dialogue, if you will, that that it, that surrounds you know, even one person's experience with psychedelics, because in a way you're having a dialogue with your own memory or your own sort of sense of of this otherworldly, uh, extraordinary um, mm -hmm. experience. And you, you started out, and I think this might be a good way to to do it by by uh, by offering, a, I think, a very important critique of the notion of cognitive tool that the idea that a psychedelic is a cognitive tool. And this is one of the, the frameworks, the new stories, the new narratives of yeah, psychedelics right. that's growing right now. You have people doing microdosing, you have people thinking about how, how, the, how they can, you know, psychedelics can be a route towards creativity, towards greater productivity, and that's all fine and well. But there's some implications, uh, I think, entailments is a, a fancy word for it that I actually really like that you you if you hmm. start using a term like cognitive tool uh, superficially it makes a lot of sense oh these are tools to help us you know change our minds to da, da 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 but there are some implications with that that we're not always necessarily aware of and that in particular in the case of psychedelics might actually obstruct some of the deeper possibilities of these things as we as we you know learn to integrate them into our lives. So um, talk a little bit about cognitive tools as a kind of metaphor for drugs and some of the issues around them. Mm. 
Yeah, you, I think I think you're right. You're definitely right that that's part of this kind of new language um, is, is talking about these psychedelics as tools, and that's. I think it's often. I think I think on the one on the one hand, it's understood to just kind of be a, 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 a pragmatic matter. Um, in indigenous cultures, it, they may be called teachers or some, something um, like that, and in uh, secular Western cultures, um, we have a history of tools or technologies or something like that. So it's just, you know, it's it's not of much consequence. But then I, I thought there was a really lovely paper by Ken Tupper and Via Labate, I think maybe a couple of years ago, on uh, the idea of um, uh, cognitive tools and other kind of names for psychedelics. And they made the point really well in that paper, I think, that what we call these things affects their very nature, because we only really get to, I mean, this is a kind of STS point, we only really get to know their nature through experimenting with them, experimenting with a very little E, um, inquiring into them, you know, using them and so on. So if we call them certain things, that that encourages us to experiment on them um, and with them in certain kinds of ways. Um, so to call them tools is to treat them in a certain kind of way, is to treat them as something. I think tools, they lend themselves to us thinking that they work automatically. You know, you, I mean, you get, the, you get the situation right, but one, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're set in your setting or right, and then you use a tool in the right way, it will produce sort of almost fairly automatically a kind of effect. And I think, I think most of the people who are kind of quite nuanced uh, in relation to psychedelics use they don't really believe that but i think the discourse lends itself to thinking that way um of course that's really compatible as well with um fitting um psychedelics within a certain kind of drug paradigm you know you take a drug it has an effect simple as that um so the idea that the effects might go might require a kind of work with the experiences that long succeeds uh, that long outlasts the acute effects of the drugs, um, it kind of lends itself to a different way of speaking about them than as tools. And 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 so I thought it would be a, a nice opportunity to think about them as teachers instead. That there are other reasons. I think um, I think tools kind of tends to suggest that they're quite controllable, and I'm not sure that ultimately psychedelics will prove to be that controllable. I mean, for example, the, the, the probability of obtaining a mystical experience in some of the early clinical trials that were done at Hopkins was about 60%. And that was with very narrow screening requirements. I mean, screening is a whole other question here. Um, so, so, uh, the idea that they kind of lead to certain kinds of outcomes or or perhaps a more um, a, a more refined way of putting it, they lead to certain kinds of experiences that then hopefully lead to certain kinds of outcomes, I think um, may miss out on um, a kind of whole uh, tale of variation um, wherein uh, wherein experiences don't don't occur as planned. Um, so that's kind of one of the, another sort of danger of the tool thing. And then I'm not sure, I think there's something fundamentally unknowable within the psychedelic experience. I mean, that's part of the liveliness of it. That's part of the joy of it. And it's certainly part of the mystery or the wonder of it. Um, 
And I think that also lends itself to thinking about these things as kind of teachers in a way, because you, you don't fully know another person or a, uh, you don't fully get to know your teacher in a way that, again, as well as being controllable tools, can be masterable. We can know them fully. We can understand how they work. Um, so I think with the switch from the kind of biochemical, this is psilocybin, to the experiential, I had this kind of weird experience or this very intense experience. Um, requires a kind of uh, a, sh a shift from in the terminology that we use yeah very much so and what, what i love about your presentation and, and just just where you've come from is that you've come from you've come to these conclusions working purely in a you know intellectual sociological anthropological hard thinking not new age not fuzzy wuzzy way of understanding these effects, these the particular issues around psychedelics, issues uh, that are brought up in, in science technology studies, et cetera, et cetera. But where you wind up with is a kind of, you know, I'll, I'll go far enough to say a kind of secular animism, where just as in animism and animistic uh, cultures, their uh, agency is granted to these non-human entities and further, there is the uh, possibility for an encounter and interaction and a kind of learning between human beings and these non-human others, whether they're the spirits of plants, the spirits of animals of the sky, et cetera, et cetera. And it's always struck me as very interesting that within the way that science technology studies talks about science and particularly talks about technology, the way in which the results of a, a given experiment, just even a or, more ordinary experiment than a psychedelic one, that the results aren't just about uh, you know the human researcher using their minds to figure out something about the world, but they're about a whole apparatus where the mic you know the microscope has something to say, the computer that organizes the data has something to say, the institutional mm. frameworks that bring the uh, those researchers together under certain regimens and not in others, they have something to say. Like a lot of non-humans have something to say about what happens in science, but that with psychedelics and with the approach that you're bringing this emphasis on the teacher, it's a, it, it's weirdly, it kind of, I think it a lot, I think it's very helpful as part of what made me excited about your, your ideas was it, it provides a way to think animistically without having to move into belief systems or, you know, alternate cosmologies, which all have their place and there's something wonderful about them too. But I think that there's a lot of people now who are kind of trying to figure out their a sort of middle path where they realize the biochemistry model is not sufficient, but they're not about to, you know, uh, join the, the Santo Daime church and start worshiping Jesus and Mary or whatever. That's not going to mm -hmm. happen. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a way in which uh, the kind of relationality uh, that is in more indigenous uh, structures in terms of teaching plants. Also, there's a, a kind of secular correspondence or, or resonance with just the idea of approaching the, 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 the drug, if you want to, but at least the experience itself as a kind of teacher where there's a there's over time, there's a back and forth, there's a deepening, there's a questioning, there's an ongoing mystery that is can, that needs to be explored really opens up a very different way of approaching these things that I think is uh, really helpful right now. Mm. Right, yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to hear that re reflected back, actually. Um, I don't, 
Yeah, I would. I, I'm. I, I'm not that keen on kind of even calling, even using the word animism here. Um, and and I think that's a kind of a, a, a danger in 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 the work in in this particular work that I'm interested in doing. Um, it's it it can suggest a, a sort of return to or a turn to an animist way of thinking about these things. And I. I I fully accept that I'm getting, I'm sort of exploring this stuff about teachers and, and critical pedagogy and, 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 and trickster pedagogies at, um, because in part it's inspired by these ideas of plant teachers, of course. But I think what, and, and, I, and I hear what you're saying about non-human um, objects and so on, having things to say. But I think what I'm trying to do here specifically is just understand sense making itself like how people are making sense of these experiences afterwards and um the questions of was was that the substance or was that all just a kind of masterful work of projection did i did i hear something other like a kind of a lesson or a teaching or did i um, just hear what I wanted to hear. I mean, these kinds of musings upon the experience, where did that experience come from? Is that, do I have that in me? Have I always had that in me? That kind of active mode of questioning, which I think can take quite a d dialogic form, and therefore it's, you sort of almost impute or you produce an other with whom you're having that dialogue um, or about whom you're having that dialogue. I think that that's... That's the stuff that I'm kind of trying to get to grips with. And I, I don't actually think it makes um, it gets very far if we assume certain models of teacher. But I think it can go quite far if we if we go with other models of teacher. So I, I'd want to be a bit specific about how we think about kind of teachers. Um, but I also want to stay very much within a kind of, I guess I would say, like broadly enlightenment context, like which which involves can involve both underground and overground experimentation, but but a kind of broadly Western kind of sites. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. 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 No, I, that that makes a lot of sense, and I want to push press you a little more on on the specific models of teachers. But I just wanted to to make the point that part of my comments about animism is not about um, returning to some pre-modern. Mm. Uh, framework, uh, the, but I, I do think that it's it's instructive that so many people who enter into psychedelics, particularly now, even more than in the past, um, who are coming from the from the underground, get attracted to varying degrees to more traditional animist cosmologies. You know how mm. much actually doing them or whatever. That's another question. But there's mm. a great attraction, and what I'm sort of suggesting is not that. It's time to return to those models, but mm. that actually they're what they're being what they're attracted to is what you're talking about. What they're attracted to is the mm. recognition that by having a dialogic relationship with your own experience, with which kind of needs to grant the other a certain space, even if you're not sure what mm. that ultimately means, that that's mm. incredibly productive. And there's also a lot of there's a kind of history in the underground of people thinking playfully let's say around mm. the issue of uh the entity or the agency or the plant teacher that's very different than what you see in 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 more you know stratified indigenous cosmologies where things are are mm -hmm. at least perceived as being very traditional 
And that kind of playfulness, to my mind, is brought forth very much with your your idea of the trickster teacher, that, that mm. there's an element of the trickster in this process that we have to kind of uh, consider. So I, I'm, I'm curious why you use that term, which, of course, itself is related, again, to pre-modern you know, mm. anthropology, but it was a, a term that, that, that did a lot of work for you in terms of clarifying the model of the mm. teacher that is helpful to bring to these experiences. So, so talk a little bit about the, the, the trickster. Yeah, sure. And, um, uh, I, I'm, I'd be the first to admit that, uh, I don't know. I don't think I know. I, I don't feel like I know that much about the trickster and it's nice to sort of start to read about the figure now, um, or ha have been doing that recently, but I guess for me, um, um, uh, okay, so going back to this idea of taking the experiences forward, um, but recognizing that the experiences um, themselves can kind of shift and change and uh, one's understanding, one's kind of recall of what happened, but then also understanding of the significance of it can morph and 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 uh, something can be recognized as its opposite or, you know, what, 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 um, um, what I needed to hear can suddenly be recoded as, oh, that's actually what I wanted to hear, not what I needed to hear. And, uh, and, and, and these ways of kind of working with the experiences, I was thinking about it as a kind of translation, a kind of craft of translating the experiences forward. And I say craft in part because I think it can often be very material. And I'm really interested in that as a sociologist, as, as kind of someone who does ethnography, um, I'm interested in the kind of material constitution or the, the the material work upon experiences so if you if you don't have a kind of suitable container sometimes for taking these experiences forward not sometimes i mean i think this is the case then they can become diminished um or you know you get back to the grind of your uh, weekly whatever after after uh, a weekend trip to south america or something like that and uh, forget about everything really quickly so this idea of um keeping the experience alive i guess is one way in which people talk about it but um i think that sort of reifies an originary experience actually the experience is constantly changing and it's it's making more sense or different sense or it needs to be kind of integrated into the everyday going forward and that is quite a material pursuit of building suitable containers for pushing it forward all of that i was thinking about in terms of translation um translation is a lovely word like it kind of is connected to this uh the word tradition of course you're building traditions as you go forward and and traditions are, are are alive they have to be kept alive they're they're never one thing um if if they were that they would die so they have to keep changing because the context changes but it's also connected to this word treachery and um you know, you can never have a translation that's sort of pure in some sense. It, the translations always betray the thing that they're translating. So the translation moving forwards can be kind of a slippery thing. Um, and so the trickster is the, as, as, as a figure of translation um, was really appealing. You know, so that's kind of that's how I got there, um, if you like. Uh, and then, of course, there's a lot of kind of stuff around stuckness that um, the use of psychedelics can unstick. Um, 
the, the, so the trickster is a figure that kind of crosses boundaries or brings kind of dynamism to a kind of categorized and boundary universe that kind of the, the, the bringing of movement the finding the third way in a kind of binary of this or that um, all of that seemed like it could be quite relevant. Um, I think there's also a massive appeal in thinking about the trickster. Um, and so I think it's it's probably important to be a bit wary of the ways in which the trickster figure can be seductive, like, oh, everybody wants to be a trickster, or the trickster is necessarily a good thing or a therapeutic thing. or, um, or, or And also, in, insofar as psychedelics... Um, people interested in psychedelics are broadly still more kind of to the left of the political spectrum, this idea that they're kind of um, progressive or, um, I mean, you find this in this idea, I think I hear this idea a little bit in the overground and the underground of psychedelics um, um, use, uh, that, that psychedelics are inherently queering entities. They kind of destabilize boundaries. And I'm not, I'm not sure that that's the case. I think sometimes... Uh, there are examples of psychedelics kind of reinforcing rather than troubling kind of boundaries. So um, Alan Piper's work um, is really interesting on the the right wing and uh, the, the, the uh, Ernst Jünger and kind of right wing movements around uh, psychedelics use. Um, but so, okay, so, so, so that was a lot of different things, but um, the trickster kind of for me features quite centrally in all of those ki kinds of issues. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think that if you're paying attention to the trickster, then you have to ask all the questions that you just did. You have to ask whether, you know, are these things ultimately good? Uh, do we believe that they have, uh, you know, regulated outcomes? And if your answer, if you think that the, the things are ultimately constrained or can be reliably uh, uh, predicted or that the political outcomes, as an example, can be reliably seen as being progressive, then you're not really paying attention to the to the trickster, which, you know, it, it, I, you know, and I'm using it in a more kind of romantic mythological sense, but I, I think it's ultimately really the same thing uh, that, that, that you're talking about. I mean, the, the political issue that you raise, I think, is also uh, very important. I've, I've had Alan on the show partly for that reason, and I think everybody should Everybody should read Ernst Jünger. If you if you like uh, if you're like Albert Hoffman, you have to read his mentor Ernst Jünger and wrestle <laughs> with who Ernst Jünger was a, a profoundly reactionary but very brilliant man. And there there's certainly a lot of uh, you know reactionary potentials in psychedelics as well, despite the fact that as you say the the dominant sort of political mythology is that these things lead to a kind of progressive openness. Uh, overall, mm -hmm. in the last fifty years, I think that's true, but it's not by any means inherent and the idea that it's inherent is again not not paying attention to the to the uh to the trickster well enough um this reminds me of something i want to uh, throw out there I, I was on a panel at the first israeli conference on mm -hmm. on psychedelics and there was a fellow there who was one of the leading uh israeli commentators on on religion he had a you know a great a blog that everybody followed and whatever very 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 smart guy he made a wonderful point he said Look, the, the the dominant ways that 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 contemporary people are responding to psychedelics, you can kind of categorize in two forms. One, it's the cognitive tool. One, these are tools or medicines that help us heal, that help give us what we want, that enable us to, uh, you know, function better in the everyday, et cetera, et cetera. And he was like, look, that's just basically. 
the conventional, you know, uh, individualism of the market and late mm. capitalism just, you know, brought to bear in a, in a new way. But it's that's that's all it is. And then on the other side, he goes and and then the other version is essentially romanticism that that mm. these drugs allow us to plug back into an enchanted nature, that they allow us to speak again with the gods, that that our intuitions become insightful, that we're you know re-plugged into a kind of meaning net uh, that that has a very pre-modern, pre-enlightenment kind of character to it. And his point was like, look, if 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 all we're doing is one version or another of these. We're not doing anything. We haven't moved in, in iota. You know, it's like we're we're still stuck, even if we if we have fancy versions of either one of these. And what he said was like what what he believed that the most powerful aspect of psychedelics and why they still there are reasons to hope uh, that they might make something create a shift is because they're unpredictable. We don't know what they're mm. going to. We don't know what they mean. There is a a kind of hard mystery that you can experience both in the middle of a intense experience, but also afterwards, as you look at the way that it can be woven into your life. And it's that unpredictability, like genuine unpredictability mm. uh, that gives them still some force and potential, not the cognitive tool model and not the return to enchanted nature model, however much my you know poetic soul is attracted to the latter just as my mm. rational mind is attracted to the former, there's something else that's going on that I think needs to be underscored and, and, and paid attention to critically as we talk about these things. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I mean, it obviously raises questions about how you, how, how you kind of legislate for the use of uh, something that's fundamentally unpredictable. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I guess that... Again, though, that that don't you think that suggests that they're kind of inherently? I mean, just the fact that they're inherently anything, I think, is is a kind of tricky thing. Um, that is true. <laughs> there, is that, there is that extra that that extra twist uh, with you know uh, having any con you know any concepts at all. But here they here they are. They're 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 in our midst. Mm. Um, so we just have a, a couple of uh, m minutes here, and I just thought, even though it's a, another topic, but you know, we can just sit, get get one one or two thoughts from you. Um, how the you know uh, the sort of ideas around psychedelics we've been talking about, particularly the idea of them as teachers, how that fits in with a larger agenda of a change in pedagogy, your interest in different kinds of pedagogy, radical pedagogy, ways of approaching learning and teaching that, mm. that sort of are, are called for by the fact that our existing models are, are stuck, unproductive in many ways. There's a kind of crisis in pedagogy. Um, do you see a way in which psychedelics kind of have something to say to these, these some of these larger issues about how we learn and how we teach? Mm, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of big, uh, it, it's a big question, at least it is for me, because it's, you know, something I'm interested in right now. Um, like for, so for, for me, the kind of the, the, the branch, if you like, or the kind of pedagogic projects that I've been most interested in tying psychedelics to are what's loosely kind of called critical pedagogy. And there are lots of different kind of traditions of it. Um, but to take, for example, um, 
big so South American um, pedagogue, critical pedagogue, uh, Paulo Freire, he talks about a kind of banking model of education as that which he's kind of against or we need to kind of get over. And that banking model of education is where like I, the teacher, know and you, the student, don't know and I kind of bank my knowledge in you um, until you become a peer or, you know, you you know too. Um, and, and that, I think, also kind of comes back to this automaticity stuff, which is a bit, uh, well, which I find really problematic. Um, and it's kind of, it's, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't focus on these ideas of, uh, process. Um, it kind of suggests that psychedelics can instill wonder in us, for example. I mean, I don't even know what that means to kind of be instilled with wonder. So I now have like a store of wonder in me or something that seems kind of funny. Um, but so instead, Paolo Freire, I mean, he's more interested in like the kind of co-constitution of frameworks of understanding, um, Another another person who I find really interesting is Jacques Rancière, the the French critical pedagogue, for who who explores the implications of this idea that teachers can be ignorant. Teachers don't need to know what it is that they're teaching. They just need to provide the appropriate container and a kind of will or a structure within which the student sort of becomes a self pedagogue, can learn for themselves. So that, to me, these the, these ideas allow us to get away from the kind of more animist notion that the plant spirit kind of knows more than us and therefore can kind of teach us, can instill us with knowledge. You know, that's more like that banking kind of model. Um, but rather it's about tracing the ways in which um, we wonder about what happened in the psychedelic experience. That's the kind of wondering the mystery around the agency, uh, a second agency. It's, it's, it's paying attention to the kind of authority um, that the experiences themselves have, you know, they're kind of, they're not like regular experiences that, I mean, that's almost, that's the definition of the mystical experience. One of the, sorry, a factor of the mystical experience is its noetic quality. The fact that it has a kind of authoritativeness. So tracing the authority of it and the way in which problems kind of get re-problematized, you know, like these kind of figure ground re reversals that happen. It's not necessarily about learning something completely new that's been banked in you but about coming back around to something that maybe you feel like you already knew or that that, that you're seeing it differently this time so i think to, to me uh, storytelling is, is 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 really important here and that's not I think I think there's something maybe in between the kind of trip reports you get, like on Arrowhead and so forth, and the kind of stories that you hear both through the the quantitative analysis and then the odd kind of qualitative study within the overground. There's something in between those two that pays more attention to these kinds of notions within people's experiences of using psychedelics, that pays more attention to um, their modes of integration and that doesn't try and kind of structure the feedback of what happened to people after their psychedelic experiences into a six-month feedback, you know, um, check-in, a one-year check-in, but actually something that's much more fluid and traces people's growth and the kind of containers that they produce to do that. That would be, that's kind of what I think of more in terms of thinking about psychedelic education. It's definitely not something along the lines of uh, take psychedelics to a school and give them to your yeah, of course not. Well, <laughs> to see, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much for this very stimulating, very interesting talk. I, I, I wish you best of luck with your uh, with your, with your further career. 
Ah, so it was really nice to talk to you. Th thank you very much, Eric. Uh, I hope to see you again at some point. Great, great. It's all you out there listening. Keep your minds open. <laughs>